0: i'm adam teeter and in seattle washington i'm zach jabal and this is the vine Pair podcast and zach before we get into what is uh, going to be a pretty serious conversation for today's podcast uh i do want to i do want to ask you because you you texted me right before we were, we were about to record that you were trying nick's aged eggnogs first of all clearly not participating in dry january <laughs> nope. uh, and second of all how was it
1: uh, it tasted. Uh, it was pretty good. Uh, and Nick is over there with a big grin on his face. I'll let him say a word about it when it he was gets a chance. It but... was pretty good. No, well, <laughs> like, you know, it's. You I, need to be more. Yeah, you flatter me. Man. You flatter like, me, you Zach. Did. Wow. <laughs> no, what I'll say about it is, what I'll say about it is, you know, this is still, it's still early in the process. It's like a barrel sample when you go, when you go taste at a winery. Like you're not expecting it to be as good as it will eventually become. It's the pieces are still coming together, but you can certainly, I can certainly see. Where the appeal in this process lies, because as we know, when we when we talked about it, when you were mentioning um like what Aaron Goldfarb and others had written about, that there is this smoothness that has come, this sort of integration of the alcohol that hasn't been there when you get freshly made eggnog, and uh, and I'm excited. I, I hope that uh, that I didn't offend Nick enough that he will uh, he won't bring me. I'm sure he'll bring me a sample when we get six or months or a year down the road, and and we can really kind of then. More formally review it, uh, than Jeez, just one can hope. Preview, yeah, exactly. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I mean,
0: yeah. you're very, very, just lukewarm in your praise. So I don't know, I don't know, Zach.
1: <laughs> no, I'll save some for you and Adam. If you ever make it to Seattle, it's waiting for you as well. Um, the I aging want process. To try it will make it more and more smooth. I think it's a nice metaphor for, for myself in my life. Like, I'm just going to get better as I age as well. And I think oh Zach, God, yes. Zach has the wizened sage oh, of this bunch can, uh, can see that in uh, me. Yeah, yes, I, feel, I, I feel wisened, but I don't know much. about a sage. Uh, Adam, I have a, I have a question for you, which is uh, since this is our first podcast of 2020, did uh, what did you do for New Year's Eve?
0: Uh, we had a dinner party. Uh, nice. That's what we usually do. And we had a bunch of people over and we popped a ton of bottles. But I will say... I had like two things happen that were both bummers, but, you know, just part of, I guess, what happens. Um, So first of all, I did something that I will do from now on, which is I – in a Spirits Decanter, I batched a a cocktail. So I did Negronis, but I've – you know, I'll do things before. And I had it out on the coffee table in the living room with just uh, rocks glasses, and then I did some garnishes. So you could either put lemon or orange twist and then ice. And it was it like was a huge hit, right? Because people nice. could come in and like they could make themselves a drink, but it was still like a nice cocktail and I didn't have to worry about it because I was still in the kitchen cooking. Um, so that was really great. But then we popped a bunch of bottles of wine. People brought really great stuff, but I had a bunch of stuff I'd been saving. And I think it was another proof in it to me that like you should just never hold on to stuff for too long because mm. two wines that i had been holding were both, of course, corked. Uh. Um, one was like this magnum of Lopez Heredia that w- I was like really excited about and we popped it and... I poured a glass of it, and then I poured a glass from you know Keith, and he was like, "Uh, yeah, this is definitely corked." And I was like, "Yeah, I know it's corked. This sucks." So that, and then, <laughs> yeah, and then another fun. bottle of like a a wine that I really like um, from Virginia that I bought with Naomi on our first anniversary from Barbersville, and it was you know so I bought that eleven years ago, and I was super excited because it was going to be like one of these like oh I bought this you know it's, it was a two thousand ten um their octagon and it was corked uh, and i was like god i should have i should have just popped these earlier right because like yeah. what was i holding on well, for they still would have been corked for? then <laughs> i know they still would have been corked but i wouldn't have been like i don't know it was yeah. like, i gotta right, wait for the right moment it's felt like the right moment for both yep. of them and i was like man any moment should have been the right moment so That's it was a lot sure. of fun we drank some some good stuff and then like as i find every year at new year's like when the champagne starts popping around midnight things start to get hazy yep and yep. Okay. uh and I was like, yeah, probably, we probably drank one or two many bottles, of, too much bottles of champagne. Yeah, I mean, like, those few that we had popped were probably fine. We probably didn't need to pop, like, everything to be like, oh, we drank everything. Oh, everyone brought. Um, yeah. But, but it was a fun time. How about you? How was working?
1: Oh, well, it's funny. You're talking about opening bottles and being disappointed. I opened a five-liter bottle of 1992, uh, a Napa Cab that was complete vinegar, so... Uh, that was disappointing, Yeah, but, uh, <laughs> I, it's actually really delicious vinegar. I think we're going to find something to do with it on the, on the kitchen side. But, but it was like, I opened it and I was just like, oh no. Cause, cause I've opened a few bottles in my life that have turned to vinegar and, and even more than with like a corked bottle, usually you just, the second you pull the cork, you're like, oh shit, like th- this is not a smell that wine should make. And, uh, it was super disappointing in that regard. But fortunately we had, it was a, I succumbed to the inevitable sommelier, um uh, I guess, compulsion to open very large bottles so we opened a couple of large format bottles and poured them on the floor of the restaurant which was a lot of fun people were you know it's one of those things where when you walk over to a table with a three liter bottle or a five liter bottle of wine people are like wow yeah it's awesome the secret the secret by the way that they did not know is i had already decanted out most of the bottle and then poured only some of it back in because those bottles are heavy enough even with just a little bit of wine in them i was definitely not pouring them tableside with four and a half liters of wine in them um not interested in doing that because right. then it really would have ended up all over the floor
0: exactly <laughs> Well, um, so,
1: yeah, it was well, good. you know, it was a long night, but but a good one.
0: Well, let's get into something that's this pretty uh, very, very timely right now. So um, I'm sure just like you over the this last these last few weeks, especially the last week between really Christmas and New Year's for me, especially I think just in the world that we are working and cover. There's there's been a lot of noise about these imp- like these impending tariffs that are coming up. Right. Um, yeah, Adam,
1: let me let me say this it has been the only thing that people in my line of work have been talking about. Me too. It's like, it, it is, it is, a I mean, it makes sense. And as we get into this conversation it will become clear why this is all anyone can talk about, but I don't think there's ever in the time I've been in the wine industry, beverage industry, I don't think there's ever been anything that has completely taken over the
0: entire conversation the way that these uh, proposed tariffs have. So, yeah, I mean, I think it, it's a really huge issue. It's going to, it's going to deeply affa- affect the world of wine. Um, and beverage in general. And so you know, in order for us to sort of tackle this topic, we wanted to bring on a special guest today, uh, Mary Taylor, who is a friend of mine, also a importer, negotiant. Um, she owns Mary Taylor Wine, really amazing uh, wines that she brings in from all over. Um, and Mary's been super active, I think probably one of the most politically active that I've seen uh, in terms of people in the wine industry, really trying to, to make people realize how deeply these tariffs will be affected. So uh, Mary, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Hey, hey, Adam. Hey, Zach. Thanks for having me. It's all I talk about. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, I mean, Mary, I think because, because you know, if you could explain a little bit of what your business is first for everyone who's listening so we can understand what you do, how you do it, how you started the company, um, I would love for you to do that first. And then let's get into what's going on.
2: Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Um, Happily. So I started in gourmet foods in the early 90s. Um, I didn't play soccer after school. I worked at a cheese shop. I was obsessed with European things and the first taste of champagne, whatever. I worked as a psalm when I was 18 at the Boston Harbor Hotel. Um, I moved to New York uh, for a literary job, which blew up under 9-11. And I found myself looking on hot jobs and applied at Sotheby's Auction House got a job in the wine department and my wine career in New York and abroad took off. So I became, um, you know, pretty geeky about wine really fast. Uh, I worked in retail. I was a buyer. Um, I moved to Burgundy. I I made wine. Um, What did I do? So yeah, uh, I worked in wholesale. I was a portfolio manager. So my whole life was in this industry. And then I went to grad school um, in 2015, which is how we met. And I, I had this idea early on, I would go into stores, like, you know, I was in really high-end boutique, but also big retail. And I'd, I'd see these shelves full of all these labels and all these importers and the the new, cool, natural wine hipster import companies and all this activity. But I realized that your average consumer really couldn't understand if Sancerre was a place or a grape. I mean, that basic fundamental difference between the way we package wine in America versus Europe um, caused a huge amount of confusion here. So I just had this great idea to take my sense of label design, which is very, very classic British bank font, and slap that onto a brand packaging. Um, And it's sort of hard for me to explain, but... To bring the Appalachian system, the place naming system that you get with cheese and salt and olives, and uh, bring that to wine and make a brand that was affordable and elegant and well-selected. And so now I have like 15 different appellations from Valencé, I do Bordeaux, um, I have Sicilia, I have wines from all over Europe. And so like my dream in the, for the you know the next 10 years is just to make a hundred different wines under my label and make them super easy to find, make them super true to terroir, um, and authentic. And, you know, I mean, and not international style and I'll never have a varietal on the front. I challenge people with things they've never heard of. Like I make bouzet and people, their head explodes, but it's all in the same label. So it makes it safe for them. So anyway, that's my business model. And I really launched it, um, really really launched it in 2016 I had it sort of in beta for a while and it did really well so I knew and the last two years um, I've expanded I'm in like 25 states like I never thought I'd see Knoxville Tennessee but like they love my wine down you know like I've traveled the country I sell everywhere all my distributors are hip and cool so it's not like a commercial thing it's it's my dream come true um absolutely and I took my kind of love of natural hip european wine with like very traditional and terroir and um so that's what i do and it's such a niche and it's like your average person is like what what do you i don't get it but ultimately i'm an importer and instead of turning the bottle around to the back to see who imported it you just can see it on the front it's just really easy to identify so that's what i do does that make sense does that make sense
1: (laughs) It does, yeah. And and so just to to add one more bit of clarification for my own sake. So so when you're bringing these wines in, are they coming in in 750 bottles already and you're just adding a, a or you're putting a label on that's your label or are they is the wine coming in in some sort of like larger format and then you're bottling it here in the US? Well,
2: interestingly enough, you can't put wine in a bladder um and ship it to the US, bottle it here and use the appellation. That's what I understand. I okay. think only one at one apple or region allows you to do that, which is Bordeaux. Um, yeah. But I, you can't uh, bring a Sancerre here in a bladder and bottle it here and call it Sancerre. I, I think th- th- um, that's against the system. Also, the whole point of like the genius of my project is that I don't have a lot of money. I don't have a lot of capital, and all I have to do all I had to do was come up with a beautiful label, establish an import company. And a contract with growers who know me because I've been around for 20 years um, and I'm going to pay them. Um, So I don't have the capital to like have a warehouse and a bottling line and all that stuff. Like that's that's way beyond my means. Like the whole point of my project was to make what seems like elitist European wine really easy to digest for your average person and maybe t- give like a yellow tail, like take a little shelf space, you know, from them with something that I think is worthwhile and authentic. Does that make sense? Yes,
0: yeah, totally. To me, Zach. <laughs> yeah, absolutely.
2: So I send the label in like a you know PDF form to the European printer who prints it there and then they have it all labeled and bottled and I pick it up gotcha. in a truck. That's it.
0: I think also what's important, right, is that I, um, you you leave the winemaker's name very prominently on the front of the label as well. Yeah, exactly. Like you're not private labeling like some random sans serre that no one knows where you got it from. Like you all I think that's what's been cool to me about your project is that it's not just there's a lot of people I think who try to are trying to, you know, make wine more accessible. I think the way you do it that's really nice is that you're also letting people know who the winemaker is. And if they want to buy other wines from that winemaker and they're able to find those wines. Exactly. Um, I mean, there's so many
2: gimmicky things out there. Like, I'm very much a a fan of the Appalachian system because, you know, Sancerre, Menetou Salon, fume, you should have a party and make everyone bring one of those three and do it all blind. Like, stuff like that, I think is so interesting. But like, you know, Jumping Jack Merlot, like I'm sick of it, you know, and I'm sick of seeing wine is like this commodity like the beauty for me is the history and the culture and the 2000 years of cultivation in Europe and I love the stories I love um I love the fact that the the word valence is on one of my bottles like that's a really historical thing it's also a cheese like there's so many stories to tell about Europe and that romantic language is something we don't have enough here um and I want to bring it to like your everyday supermarket that's my goal
1: Okay, so let's talk about why these proposed tariffs are essentially. Would I mean you can you can describe it however you want, Mary, and, and and talk about how it would affect you personally and your business. But but from everyone that I've talked to, as I mentioned, you know there's there's a lot of you know the, the term sort of extinction level event has been thrown around, and I don't personally think that's all that hyperbolic. So so can you talk a little bit about how if these proposed hundred percent tariffs on European wine and and many other products, cheeses, spirits, etc., go into place?
0: It, what does this mean well, to you? Yeah, I mean, I think for first, Zach, just jump on board with your question, Mary. If you can sure. give us a, a quick, what are these tariffs? Yeah, yeah. And how long? You know, we we all know that there was something being passed earlier, but now all of a sudden it seems to have escalated, and I and they're coming based on two different sources, right? One is all of Europe, and one is France specifically, and against two different retaliations, right? One is a tech tax that France is imposing, and one is a trade war between Boeing and Airbus. So I think if you could just break that down too, that'd be really important for everyone to understand.
2: Yeah. So, and I'll, and I'll do my best. So the first, well, tariffs have been threatened by this administration since the beginning. Um, I've heard a lot of noise about it for a couple of years, and um, and I've been scared about it for a long time, and I've been yelling about it for a long time, and um, to a lot of deaf ears until it actually was enacted. Um the, the the first round of tariffs um that hit on October twenty I'm sorry October eighteenth were announced only on October 9th. It gave people nine days. I mean it, it makes no sense. Like everyone had wine in the water. It's the highest of high season. Um I have wine that was late. I had to bring it, so I had to pay. So when the wine comes in through custom, so I import from France, from La Havre, it goes to uh it goes to New Jersey. And the day before you know, the boat is approaching the, the port, I get an email from my customs broker, and they say, does this look right to you? They send me a bill, and it lays out all my duties and fees. And usually, like because I only buy full containers, which is like 1,200 cases of wine. And usually, because my wines are not that expensive, and um, so usually maybe it's like $3,000, and I'm like, ouch, and you have to pay it right away. They, they don't give you terms. But now that same container is like $15,000. So um, with my, like person, my business, I had like three containers land that got hit with the tariffs. And it wasn't just for France. It was France, Spain, Germany, and UK. If they, and, But it wasn't sparkling. So I don't know if they, why the UK was there. Um, but so, I, you know, I lost like $30,000, you know. And it's like, you know, if people want to say, oh, we'll just drink American. Let me just caution people that it's not... It's not really about that. It's not really necessarily about drink French or drink American. It's about does the government use little tiny small businesses as pawns in a big global trade war between multi billion dollar companies? Like how does how does putting me personally like taking thirty thousand dollars where I don't even pay myself? um, I'm a startup business. Um, You know, I try to pay my bills on time. You know, keep everything up to date. Um, you know, I, all, all the time am paying myself back the loan that I've loaned the company, like there's no extra, like 30 grand, like that's it. You've just, so I like, I don't, I don't know how, I mean, I, and these big, huge companies, I mean, the lucky thing is, is I don't, I have two cats, you know, like I don't have kids. I don't know what I'd do if I had a family to feed. I, I, that's, I think why everyone's just losing their mind because, even the 25%, I mean, it's just going to trickle down through the industry and everyone's going to be out of work. I mean, I don't think the government sees how this, how this plays out. I mean, I go to, like, Florida or I go to Texas or wherever, and there's these little companies and they employ six, seven, eight people who drive around and sell wine. Like, no, the consumers don't see them. They're not in the news. The U.S. you know, your average person has no idea how this all works. They don't know how cool wine gets to the wine store. So, and these are, I think these are really easy easy businesses to topple. And it's like it's just not fair. I mean, where's the New York Times? Why haven't they had like a cover story? I mean, putting little companies out of business. that are in the wine space, I mean, I think that's worth a story. And then not to mention single malt scotch, um, all these cheeses, almost every country in Europe, the cheeses, um, wool products, cashmere. Um, I mean, this is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, like the the party of conservative small government telling you what to drink, telling you that that scotch is now going to be double and that money is going to go right to the government. How do I don't, anyway? I've gone on a tangent, but I can keep talking about it if you want.
0: So I mean, we understand. So the tariffs are obviously proposed; they haven't gone into effect yet. But I know that there's like the, so. Basically, a lot of the reason people are making noise is that there is some things that hopefully we can try to do to prevent all of this. So the question is like, what can people do, and what are people doing now?
2: Yeah. So the, one of the most shocking things um, I realized was that. I was one of the only phone calls that any of my the senators in various states had received. And in fact, I talked to a friend down in Tennessee. I said, you've got to call your senators and tell them your livelihoods at stake. He did. And he told me, and this was like a couple weeks ago. And he said, like Tom Tillis or whoever's down there, that was the first they'd heard. So. There is a comment, you know, the, the USTR, and we you, you can put the link up or whatever, but there's a way to comment directly to the USTR, the United States Trade Rep, um, in opposition. And they've received something like 10,000 comments in opposition to this. Um, but I don't think that's enough. Um, not only have I made comments on there, I've had my mother and father and sister and brother and cousin, you know, everyone I can get to make a comment on there. Um, because, well, anyway, um, and I've actually spoken to like Susan Collins and Maine and I've, especially Republicans, you really want to get them. But I had a delegation letter written by um, Murphy and Blumenthal in Connecticut. I have my town mayor involved. I have my um, local congressional rep involved. I, any state where I'm a constituent whatsoever, I'm like, I take these people and I shake them. I'm like, I'm about to lose my shirt. Like you have given subsidies to the farmers, knowing how diff- difficult this trade war with China has been. Where's my subsidies? What happens if you put me out of business? What do I eat? You know, I mean, how do I serve? You, you just put people out of business with no um, backup. Like, I don't know why people aren't like in the street. I, mean, I actually went down to D.C. and I met with Susan Collins um Senate office. I met with her head of economic development. Not not she herself, but you know, I'm face to face. I'm in front of these people. And I told the woman, hey, I'm really serious here. You know, I'm in DC because I was doing a dinner at the new really hip restaurant Emily's. Um, and I said, I'm here in DC because I'm doing this dinner at this new hip restaurant. And she's like, oh my God, I love that restaurant. I'm a total natural wine hipster myself. I'm actually in a natty wine club. And I was like, that's awesome. Help us. <laughs> like, Don't let us, don't let us die. Like, so I got in front of them. Um, But like, yeah, I mean, it's just sort of like, how can the U.S. government like propose to put tens of thousands of small businesses out like this without a backup? Yeah.
0: Well, so one of the things I think that you, you touched on that I've been talking about a lot is how do, how do we get more people in the industry to talk about it? And, you know, if anyone who's here in D.C. is listening, Maybe those restaurants can raise the alarm as loud as possible and get in front of all of these cool, young, hip people that like to eat out in the city because its dining scene is blowing up and help them realize that they're not going to get to have a cool, young, fun dining scene to go out and eat in if these tariffs happen. Because I think that people don't – I think my perspective, and Zach, I'm curious what you feel as well, is I honestly don't think that people realize – how bad it is. You're like, oh, double the cost. Oh, so what's that going to mean? It's not going to really affect me, right? Like I didn't think tariffs are supposed to affect me. Or like, you know, oh, I'll just find, you know, it's it's not that big of a deal. Like the, you know, everyone will eat the cost and I I won't wind up eating much of it. But I think they don't realize that actually a lot of this great stuff that we now consume just won't be here because people won't be able to afford to bring it in anymore. And it's not like the huge companies that probably are going to be the only ones that can afford to keep paying these tariffs or eating some of the tariffs. The and I'm talking about the really big distributors and importers. Aren't going to bring in the, that that really great stuff right now because that's just not that's not their business model. It never has been. So all the really interesting wine kind of will disappear. Okay, so let let me
1: offer you two two points here in support of what you guys have just said. The first of is first one is I think there is this misguided assumption, and, and Adam, you've kind of laid it out that people who are not directly connected to this industry have about these tariffs if they're even aware of them and the first is okay well yeah my preferred wine or single malt scotch or whatever is going to be more expensive no in a lot of cases it won't be available like it's not unless your favorite wine is very large scale production and as Adam mentioned is imported and distributed by one of the couple of extremely large uh, like multinational beverage companies who can for some amount of time probably essentially provide their own subsidies you are not going to be able to get it or at best. Yes, you will be paying twice the price. And the other part of it is, and I think this is the other thing that, that does not get considered enough in this whole conversation is, you know, we have gotten to a point prior to this sort of um, threat where the amount of the diversity of wine in particular, but, but, but spirits and beers that are available um, in the U S market uh, broadly from outside of the United States is incredible. I mean, there is amazing wine coming in from all over the world. And I think some people, as we were talking about earlier, think, okay, well, maybe I'm not a huge European wine fan. I like wine from South Africa, or I like wine from Australia, or Chile, or Argentina, or wherever, or I like domestic wine. And yes, those wines will not be directly impacted by this, but as I think Mary was getting at, there is, a, there is a huge uh, ripple effect that will come out of this because there are not a lot of importers that are specifically focused on New World Appalachians. There are some. I work with a couple here in Seattle that are specific to, a, to one country or specific to the New World, and they don't deal with European wine. And okay, maybe those people will be fine. But there's going to be also increased demand for those wines because there's going to be obviously a lot of people looking to replace the European wines that's, that are on their wine programs with something that isn't getting a huge tariff added to it. So those costs are going to go up. There's not enough supply for a lot of those things besides maybe some of the very inexpensive large-scale production wines from South America or Australia. And the reality is, like I said, the vast majority of distributors and importers in this country have a, a diverse portfolio. And if you take 30, 40, 50, 60, 70% of that and suddenly either incredibly increase the price and or just remove it from the market entirely, those businesses will not exist or they will be much, much, much smaller and have a lot harder time providing service to grocery stores, to restaurants, et cetera. I have one last point that I want to add because I think it also needs to get mentioned here and is forgotten about a lot. And it's been on my mind a lot outside of wine. I know that's what we're all specifically talking about here. And that is this will also devastate the cocktail industry in this country because there are not actual replacements that are non-European production spirits for a lot of the things that we talk about i mean adam you talked about your batch negroni at the top of the show what the fuck are you making that out of if campari is twice the price i mean maybe you still suck it up for a special occasion and you buy it but that's going to disappear from a lot of bars it's going to disappear from a lot of people's uh you know homes and it's going to and there are not there are a few small producers in the U.S. who make something in the general vein, but they don't make enough of it to replace every bottle of Campari in every bar and liquor shop in the country. And I, no one, no one has. I mean, wine is only one part of this. Obviously, for for the three of us, in a lot of ways, it's the most important part. But it is not the only part of this that will be impacted. And so, being some saying saying to as, as someone who is not a big wine drinker, listening to this, if you like craft cocktails, you like yeah any kind of imported European spirit. You are, or cheese, yeah, or cheese, yes, cheese, as you mentioned, you know, certain clothing items, stuff like that, um, you know, olive oils, all that stuff, it's all on the table here. And even if it's not currently being proposed, I don't think any of us can also feel confident that if these tariffs are put into place, they're the end of it. I mean, that the, the answer is the reality is, you know, you can talk about getting in touch with legislation or legislators, and I think that's important for sure, but in the end, trade is really kind of an executive branch. Uh, function and the the president and the executive branch have a lot of latitude in how to deal with it. And I wish I could tell you that there was a way to have a positive impact on that part of our government. But if you know, if anyone out there listening knows how to do that, you know a lot more than I do.
2: Well, I have to say though, I've learned something through this is that call like when you call your senator, it, I mean, New York is a one thing because it's so huge and they are just overwhelmed. But like in Connecticut. They answer the phone, and it's like they're second person in command. I have so many people interested in this in the political realm in Connecticut and Maine, and anywhere else where i've taken a breath. I consider myself a constituent, and I think that it's kind of fun. I mean, you call and you say hey i 'm just a consumer I'm really concerned about this tariff issue i have the, I love san I love um scotch you know like i i I really want to support you." fighting against this. And I think, I mean, having people, the senators write letters to the the feds is, is a pretty good idea. I mean, I think they they do take it into account. In fact, they have lunch with Lighthizer, the head of the USTR, um, like every other week, there's a trade lunch, or there's a trade discussion, and it's all on Capitol Hill, and they're all talking to each other. Um, the, the more um, everybody pushes against it, I think the better so in today, the um, I got in touch with Boeing. <laughs> I said, "Hey guys, my grandfather used to work at Boeing in the 50s. Um, I'm about to lose my company. Everything I've ever built as a, you know, casualty in the crossfire of this trade war between multi your 100 billion dollar companies. Like, do you and I, me and everyone I know and 80,000 jobs and do you What, like, what do you have to say about this? Like, why won't Boeing speak out? Like, shouldn't we, how about 100,000 people call Boeing? They have a media line. I mean, why not? I emailed three people at the company. Maybe we could flood them. I mean, do they want this? I doubt it. Um, You know, there's like kind of thinking outside the box here, um, trying to make an impact wherever I can. Um, because this, this could be like, I could work all day and try to sell wine and go drive around Long Island and see retailers and blah, blah, blah. But this is more important right now. Um, I'm going to DC on Monday and I'm um, going to speak at the hearing on Tuesday. The only chance we have to speak, it's the hearing on whether or not they should put a hundred percent tax on sparkling wine. And it's the only hearing they're having about any of this at all. So, um, they know I'm coming. <laughs> I'm coming down there again <laughs> in my little field.
0: Yeah. yeah. So is anyone is anyone organizing or do you know like any you know sort of trips down to DC as a group to say all go to Capitol Hill together? Is
2: yeah, I I've seen like um I think I I stumbled across Elisa Cooper um I have to look that one up. I was in touch with um, NABI NABI. It's the National Association of Beverage Importers. Um, they said that they were going to go down. Um, you know, I've been working pretty much unilaterally just because, you know, that's how I generally operate. Um, and I'm like, i be been, if anyone wants to jump in my car and come with me and say something, but you had to submit your comments for review by five o'clock today. So you have 14 minutes. <laughs> um, uh, and, you know, I mean, Lovely. So I'm, I'm getting like a slot, a time slot to stand up and tell my four paragraph story and um, just try to, you know, I mean, my whole thing is like, we're our family. We're American patriots. Like this is not, this is not the American way. We don't like, I mean, there's just, this is just not fair. It's just not fair. And you don't just gut companies, you know, as casualties in trade wars. Like it doesn't, um i mean I, I don't know what to say about prohibition i mean all kinds of ideas have entered my my head like in prohibition like 3 miles off the coast of new york there was a rum island there was boats that it was like just in international waters and they were stocked full of liquor and at in the middle of the night dinghies would go out and pick up their liquor <laughs> um and I'm like trying to think. Like, you well, don't
0: want to go into organized crime. Man. I don't
2: like thinking like, wait, <laughs> <okay. laughs> if I was like Al Capone for ten years, it'd be kind of fun. Um, well, but I'm like, what can I do to like, you know, I, I don't know.
0: No, but I think I think like what what you're saying, and this is, leaves us at a really good place. I think hopefully everyone can understand just from hearing from you what this is doing to people in this industry whose livelihoods are going to be 100% affected by this. And so if you're a listener of this podcast, if you're a reader of Vine all, and you happen to randomly click on this podcast, it's the first one you've ever listened to, you didn't get job, you know, Zach and my witty banter at the beginning, whatever. If you care about the beverage industry, in the next week, this week this podcast comes out, contact your elected officials yeah, because we all need to say we at least tried. Um, sure. And I think sitting here making a bunch of noise about it is great, but noise doesn't matter if you don't reach out and don't say things that I've heard from other people like, oh, well, I'm not that connected or we really need to get to lobbyists or whatever. No, you, you can still contact them. Right. I'm a very prominent Psalm on a thread that I was on said, like, I'm not that connected, but I'll, I'll see if I can find people that are, but if he had reached out, it still helps. Yeah. Right. So you know, depend. No matter where you live, contact your officials, especially as Mary said, if they are a member of the president's party.
2: I'm literally fucking nobody. I'm not connected to anybody wealthy, and I got four senators to write letters. So come on, you know they they yeah. love small business. That that they you know, this is a country that's founded on entrepreneurship and private industry, and to to screw over a huge component of that is. And one little last point, I just want to make one little last point before we go, is that when I go to these cities, that you, these little cities like Cleveland, whatever, that used to be tumbleweed type, type places with nail salons and pizza parlors, I've noticed there's a renaissance going on in this country where there's like three hip wine stores and like a kick-ass be, like craft beer place and like two really good restaurants that are like cult – and it's like making – these little cities so exciting and make bringing so much joy and pleasure to so many people. Like who wants to gut that? Come on. That's like, that's against the, the well being of this country. So, okay. I've done
0: my soapbox. <laughs> Thank you. Well, Mary, oh, I look, I, I completely understand why this is something you're incredibly passionate about. And I really appreciate you taking the time instead of emailing Boeing to come and spend, you know, 45 minutes with us to talk us through this. Yeah. Um, And yes, please, I mean, I I just want to, I'm going to close the same thing I said. If you, you know, I know every week we close the podcast by saying, uh, you know, if you enjoy what you're hearing, please, um, you know, like us on Facebook. I mean, not Facebook, sorry. Like us on iTunes or, you know, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast, leave a review. But this week, please, if you care about this beverage industry, just contact your elected officials. Yes. And we will see you back here next week. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the VinePair Podcast. If you like what you've heard, please rate us or review us wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps people discover the show. Now for the credits. The VinePair Podcast is produced by myself and Zach Jabal and is engineered by Nick Patry, who recorded out of Cloud Studios in Seattle, Washington, and also in our New York City headquarters. I'd also like to give a special shout out to my co-founder, Josh Mallon, and the rest of the VinePair staff who help us conceive of the show every single week. Thanks again for listening.